0: So Stephen said it's tide, and it's a season where we celebrate the resurrection. And when we start reading Ecclesiastes, you're going to think, what on earth are we doing? This does not feel like a celebration of the resurrection, but hopefully we can connect some dots. So let's look at the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Now hear a reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Feudal, feudal, laments the teacher. Everything, absolutely feudal. Everything is feudal. What benefit do people get from all the effort which they expend on earth? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same through the ages. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries away to a place from which it rises again. The wind goes to the south and circles around to the north. Round and round the wind goes, and on its rounds it returns. All the streams flow into the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to describe it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear ever content with hearing. What exists now is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing truly new on earth. Is there anything about which someone can say, look at this, it is new. It was already done long ago, before our time. No one remembers the former events, nor will anyone remember the events that are yet to happen. They will not be remembered by the future generations. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I decided to carefully and thoroughly examine all that has been accomplished on earth. I concluded, God has given people a burdensome task that keeps them occupied. I reflected on everything that is accomplished by men on earth, and I concluded, everything he has accomplished is futile, like chasing the wind. What is bent cannot be straightened, what is missing cannot be supplied. I thought to myself, I've become much wiser than any of my predecessors who ruled over Jerusalem. I've acquired much wisdom and knowledge, so I decided to discern the benefit of wisdom and knowledge over foolish behavior and ideas. However, I concluded that even this endeavor is like trying to chase the wind, for with great wisdom comes great frustration. Whoever increases his knowledge merely increases his heartache. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, I confess that when I come to books like this and passages like this, Um, not only am i longing to know what it means but i'm longing to know why why it's there why is it in the bible at all and so i ask lord for wisdom for myself not the kind that's frustrating and depressing but the kind that's leading to life and i ask for that for this church as we study ecclesiastes lord would you help us to discern what is futile from what is not In Jesus' name, amen. Yo, (laughs) right? I mean, who put this on screen? What are we doing? (laughs) Um, Did we accidentally copy and paste some blog from some, you know, angst-filled deconstructionist 22-year-old? sorry to anyone who's closer to 22 than i am um yes okay this is in the bible that's why i encouraged you to you know actually open a bible and look at it it's right after the book of proverbs interestingly the very this page that we just read is the next page after book of proverbs and that in and of itself is fascinating to me proverbs is sort of the popular go-to book of wisdom right in the bible you know do this way live a certain way and things will go a certain way for you you know do right by people and they'll do right by you you know train your kids raise them in a certain way and they'll turn out a certain way and 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 that's the the general guidance of the book of proverbs i'm selling it a little bit short it's it's a more nuanced than that, and there's certainly some, some moments of realism in the book of Proverbs. But, but in general, Proverbs is the, the mentor speaking to the, the young person saying, hey, here's some, here's some general guidance for how to live. Ecclesiastes is a few years later when the mentee comes back and says, I'm doing all this stuff. And it's not working out. And the mentor says, yeah, I've been waiting for this. Um, It does, everything does work out, except when it doesn't. (laughs) Let's talk about that. That's what Ecclesiastes gets at. Things work except when they don't. Proverbs treats the world like it's a fairly predictable system ecclesiastes acknowledges that it's not a predictable system for uh for our you know math people and engineers proverbs is newtonian physics the laws of physics the world sort of works a certain way ecclesiastes is quantum mechanics You get a little bit further past and you realize the world is not a machine that can be controlled. We applied the rules and they seemed to work for a time and then we came up with all of these other problems that were caused by our little solutions to little things. That's what Ecclesiastes argues. But I want to argue that the book of Ecclesiastes is an incredible grace to us, an incredible gift. You see... Often we treat faith, the Bible, prayer, church, like a program, like something that, you know, if you work the steps, if you do the program, it's going to just work out. Things will get better for you. And that's great, except when it doesn't work out. And, and when that happens, many people's faith comes crashing down. Um, many, many years ago, there was a there was a guy who had grown up in this church. I was just a few years older than him enough that I was a volunteer in the youth group when he was going through the youth group and um, and in his young adult life he had fallen into a number of, of addictions and and uh, some some big challenges that had derailed him for a time and then for a time after that he came back you know he was pursuing sobriety came back was involved in the church and and there was this one moment uh where after a service he came up just totally um you know unapologetically and said hey I just want to let you know uh this is my last Sunday. I'm not not because I'm moving to Birmingham, but uh because um it's just it's just not working for me. Like this just isn't working for me. It's not getting me where I want to go. And he was in a very um uh, do this and this will happen mindset and and I didn't really have a response to him. I, you know, oh, okay, well, God bless you. You know, stay in touch. Um, that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. At the heart of Ecclesiastes is the shout that we hear in verse 2: futile, futile. Everything is futile. That is the word hevel all right the the next slide here hevel um and this is a really interesting word it shows up 38 times in the 12 chapters of ecclesiastes 38 times so the the meaning of this word is the the key that you need for the meaning of the book what is hevel and and you know there's a few different ways that that translators have translated the word hevel you know i've got a few here vanity futile meaningless mirage vapor smoke probably more emptiness hevel what is hevel outside of ecclesiastes this word shows up in interesting ways in the bible the first time this word shows up in the bible it's a name and it's a fascinating name. We don't spell When we put it into English, we don't spell it with the same letters. But it sounds a little bit the same, especially the Hebrew letter that we use for a V uh, is, is bait. All right? It's the kind of the B sound. And so B, V, uh, those apparently are similar sounds. And so Hebel, Hebel, well, the first time that word shows up is the name Abel. You know, the brother of Cain who offers a sacrifice that pleases God, you know. And so before we really learn anything else about Abel, his brother murders him out of jealousy and Abel vanishes. He's gone from the scene. Now, in, in full disclosure, uh, the word studies that I looked at say, oh, that's just a coincidence of ancient languages. You know, Abel doesn't mean hell. I'm like, well, it sure feels like it does. So this is Mike being a punk and disagreeing with the scholars. But, um, but gosh, like, when I think about Abel's life, doing the right thing and then pff, nothing, it makes me think of Ecclesiastes. If you keep going into uh, the book of Genesis and, and Exodus and and, uh, and and the throughout the Pentateuch, the word "hevel" shows up whenever there's a discussion of false gods and and offering sacrifices to false gods. It's these these gods are empty. They're 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 futile. They're nothing. They're hevel. It describes them. But in ecclesiastes the word seems to shift and move as he as his discussion follows different things so i want to look at during this sermon just three different ways to think of the word hevel we'll start with the word that our translation the new english translation uses to define it and that's the word feudal i don't blame the translators of 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 the net at all for saying feudal i mean the opening message the chapter that we just read says look that you can do whatever you you can do the biggest most important things and the sun will set and the sun will rise and after a few settings and a few risings you'll be gone and everyone will have forgotten about it this is the this is the long old earth short man idea we are Tiny in comparison. If you, if you want proof, um, tell me, what was your great-great-grandfather's greatest achievement? Maybe I should make it easier. What was your great-great-grandfather's name? Not many of us know. Okay, some of us do. Don't ruin my point, Danny. Shh. <laughs> Not many of us know. Even I. You know, I know my great-grandparents' names sometimes. But my great-great-grandparents, I don't even know their names. I don't know their, I don't know what they did for work. I don't know where they were. And my great-great-grandchildren probably won't know anything about Littleton Christian Church either. Ecclesiastes renders much of life futile by comparing it to the march of time and the cycles of the earth. It's so big and so long, and we're just a blip in it. Lots of people have come before you. The other reason futile is a key word is captured in the phrase, nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes is always looking at life under the sun, which actually should bring our minds back to Genesis, where, where God creates sun, moon, and stars, and then puts us under them. All right. So it's wanting us to think about our our life as creatures. But it says there's nothing new under the sun. My first memory of seminary, I I started seminary in 2004. So these are fading memories already. Um, Speaking of Hevel. um, So I'm not sure if this was my first day, but it's the earliest memory I have. Uh, uh, Every seminary student has at least when I was there, I think it's still true, has to take uh, Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, BI-501. And when I took BI-501, it was in the big classroom, which happened to, to share a movable wall with where our church met, which really fascinating so um to me because there i am in class you know anyway it doesn't matter um so it's a big class there's maybe 50 or 60 students in the class and you look around and it is bright eyed and bushy-tailed you know skilled passionate gifted young bible kids I mean, we were people who just, we loved studying the Bible. Somebody along the way in our life had probably told us, you're really good at teaching the Bible. You understand things about the Bible. And so we come into BI-501, and we are, you know, we're already experts. And the first thing that my professor, Bill Klein, who had the best facial hair in the history of the seminary, I mean, a mustache that he waxed, so... That's classy. Um, The first thing he says is, if you discover a new meaning in Scripture, you're wrong. That was the point of day one of seminary. If you discover a new meaning, people have been studying this thing for 2,000 years. If you discover something new, a new interpretation of it, you're wrong. You've missed it. I mean, a lot of hands shot up. That was hard. I'm about to spend three years learning how to teach this thing, being told that all people need to do is find a great podcast. They don't need to listen to me. Here we reach the first theological reflection of the book. At the end of chapter 1, he basically says, God's gift to man is a life of futility. We're distracted by toil and death. And the more we learn and think about it, the more frustrated we'll be. And this is where the process of deconstruction begins. Perhaps you guys have heard this term. This is a a word that's grown in popularity, deconstruction. In fact, it's become a popular thing for people of faith to do. They deconstruct their faith. In religious terms, it means someone's long-held faith has proven unhelpful or unsatisfactory to deal with the complexities of life. The moral codes seem irrelevant at best or perhaps cruel or hateful to real people with real problems at worst. Or perhaps someone's been exposed to some scholarship, some picture of scripture, some study of who really wrote such and such book or how it became part of the Bible or whatever that makes a compelling case against their long-held faith. Friends, you just read an honest church history book and it won't take long before you see how Christianity became, you know, empirical and militarized within, you know, just a few centuries of Jesus's life. And we were telling people, "Hey, either baptize, either get baptized or we'll just chop off your heads." <laughs> I mean, it's hard to it's hard to get real excited about the advance of the gospel if that's the way we're doing it. My goodness. We twisted the words of Moses, David, Jesus and Paul to our own ends. And so, deconstruction happens. People deconstruct, hoping to find a way to explain life that honors its complexity as they experience it. And this is where Ecclesiastes comes in, and it offers us the second word, meaningless. Meaningless. Now, this idea of meaningless is Ecclesiastes says, fine, deconstruct go through that process but you must be an equal opportunity deconstructionist that's a word now you must be an equal opportunity okay fine you want to deconstruct your faith that's great deconstruct everything that you think is important to you deconstruct your 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 pursuit of wealth or pleasure or types of relationships popularity influence deconstruct all of it because ecclesiastes is it's going to be fair in that it's going to say that the biggest most important things the things that are driving you and getting you up in the morning those fall apart much more quickly than your faith when you look at them the teacher who is giving us all of the clues to say, hey, I'm Solomon, you know, the, the, the wealthy, stable king, the son of David, the teacher saying, I have achieved all of it and none of it was what I thought it would be. None of it gave me what I thought it would. Millennia before deconstruction was cool, Ecclesiastes was doing it. It was questioning things, even sacred things, and it and and ecclesiastes the reason it's a gift in the bible another reason is it says that's that's okay that's part of growth we don't want to just take this stuff uh like with blind faith with a leap in the dark it's okay to push and explore and question and ask but we must do it with everything in fact, some scholars lean into the word meaningless, and they see an image there. It's, it's the next word, the word mirage. Mirage. This is the idea of meaningless. What a, what a powerful image, you know. We, we don't um, wander through deserts very often in Colorado, um, but I've seen it. I've seen it in the hot... Sun, you can even look across a parking lot and you see the light doing that thing, you know, making it wave in the heat. And you can imagine being in a desert desperate for water and seeing that and thinking, there it is. There's water. If I can just make it there, I'll survive. That's a mirage. You make it there and there's nothing there. You arrive to nothing. A mirage is a deadly Lie, leading the wanderer further into the wilderness, but never offering the life that they need. Or, Hevel can be vapor. Vapor. Two authors and scholars I really like go with the word vapor or the word smoke. I'm talking about Tim Mackey. And Eugene Peterson in, in the message uses the word smoke. They're, uh, feudal and mirage, those are really depressing ideas, aren't they? It's not a happy Easter tide with feudal and mirage. Those ideas say no matter how hard you stomp, you'll never shake the earth. No matter how much you acquire, you'll never get what you need. But with vapor and smoke, there's at least this glimmer of an idea that it's not nothing. It's not quite nothing. It's it's there, it's something. You can smell it and feel it. I mean, this week after going from 85 degrees to snow, Colorado, right? A really cool thing happened. You know, the the day it was raining and then snowing, is I, I, I walked out into this parking lot And the whole parking lot is just this beautiful steam rising. And it had that smell, that fresh rain smell that was like, oh, I just want to breathe this in. I mean, asphalt, you know. But, ah. I mean, the ancients, you know, were developing steam houses. You know, they knew it was therapeutic. The, the wealthiest, most powerful people in the Roman Empire would be so jealous of the cheap humidifier I plug in for my kids when they have a cold. They knew that it, it, it helped us. It did something for us. And yet we couldn't grab it. We can't control it. You can't change its shape. It's doing whatever it wants to do. I wonder if the imagery of Hevel reminded the first readers of the smoke that was rising up on the altar when they worshipped God. They had surrendered something, and it was turning into something they couldn't control and leaving. I wonder if it reminded them of that. Equal opportunity deconstruction sees most human pursuits as a mirage. But if we press on in Ecclesiastes, the teacher will see certain moments as undeconstructible, Indestructible might be a better word. I want to, near the end here, finish with the famous words of chapter 3. We'll look at chapter 2 next week. Look at chapter 3. He says, For everything there's an appointed time. An appropriate time for every action on earth, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what was planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to throw away stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give something up as lost, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to rip a time to sow, a time to keep silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. What benefit can a worker gain from his toil? I have observed the burden that God has given to people to keep them occupied. Does that sound like chapter one? Yeah, but then he says, God has made everything fit beautifully in its appropriate time, but he has also placed ignorance in the human heart so that people cannot discover what God has ordained from the beginning to the end of their lives. I have concluded that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil, for these things are a gift from God. I also know that whatever God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God has made it this way so that men will fear him. Whatever exists now has already been and whatever will be has already been. For God will seek to do again what has occurred in the past. Friends, when are the ups and downs, the pursuits of life meaningless? It seems they're meaningless when we make them the end all be all. When we look at them and say, there is the water that will finally parch my thirst they do become mirages at that time but the teacher realizes the experiences of life they come from somewhere he he steps back and you know the sun rises and sets but then he sees things start to fit into this big picture this big story that is a hint of something behind it all a planner a composer keeping time of the universe God himself. The theologian James Houston calls this realization joy. He says we find joy when we have this realization. He says joy is the capacity to accept, to say yes to a good world. He says it's the act of going outside of oneself as a small child does, to be involved with other objects for their own sake. Going outside of himself, outside of oneself, and just enjoying things for what they are. You know who that reminds me of? I'm going to surprise you here. Jesus. (laughs) What did Jesus own? How big was his bank account? I mean, he very clearly owns some clothes. Otherwise, I think they'd mention the naked man walking around. But aside from that, he's living and staying in his friend's couches, traveling around. He's got other people supporting his ministry. Unlike your great-great-grandfather, Jesus didn't have a measurable greatest accomplishment. He didn't write a book. He didn't build a thing. He didn't design a new thing. He didn't keep a careful calendar so that he made it to all his appointments on time. In fact, as his popularity was growing, his disciples were the ones who thought, you should be strategic with your time. You should do the important stuff and leave the other stuff behind. And there's one scene, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that makes me think of Ecclesiastes. In Mark chapter 10, it says, now people were bringing little children to him For him to touch. But the disciples scolded those who brought them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That means he was really mad. (laughs) Jesus, gentle Jesus. This is one of the few words for rage used in reference to Jesus in the Gospels. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not try to stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. After he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. Friends, Jesus thought that this connection, this connection with these kids, that we, we don't know who they are, We don't know what they went on to do. It was the most important relationship that he had. If you try to take it away from him, he's going to yell at you. I don't want Jesus to yell at me. In fact, I want to follow his behavior. I want to receive the children, and I want to receive the kingdom like a child. And that's what Ecclesiastes invites us to do. Those giggling connections were of more significance than if Jesus had ministered to Caesar himself. Here is the one who embodied the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, and he offers that to each of us. It may have seemed to his disciples like he was saying, everything we've done so far is heaven, when he sat around the table and said, hey, I'm, I'm about to get arrested and executed. In fact, they were getting ready to betray him at that moment. He, he's missed it. He's gone off the reservation. And yet, at that very moment, he does leave behind a great gift. He says, when he took the bread and he had given thanks for it, he broke it and says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We find the meaning that Solomon could never find. Let's pray together. Jesus, the sun rises and the sun sets. And you are alive. Reigning at the right hand of the Father. Standing before him saying, these ones who come to this table, they're with me. They're mine. Lord, thank you for receiving us as little children And let us receive your good creation as a little child does. In Jesus' name, amen.